Okay, so you all are the a group that have endured, managed to come all the way to the third session. Well done. I, in the first session, I gave an overview of the whole book. Uh, then uh, last week, I've, although I focused on two chapters, I, want, I introduced the very broad principle of needing to learn to apply Leviticus, but not by reading literally all that is written. So that was a, a principle that I uh, tried to emphasize last uh, Thursday. And this Thursday, applying that same principle just to two more chapters. right? And that hopefully that should leave us a bit more time at the end in case you have more, uh, other questions you want to pick up either from tonight or the earlier two nights. So the two chapters I've chosen are Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 23. Leviticus 19, you shall be holy. It's a major theme and, and I'll explain why I've chosen Leviticus 19. It, it has, well I'll say it now in case I forget. It has that verse that Jesus uses in the New Testament uh, to say is the, the, the most important commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Leviticus 19 I think is uh, an important chapter. Jesus refers to it in his summary of what is the, the greatest commandment. But let's begin at the beginning of Leviticus 19, verses 1 to 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So have a look again at those two verses. A couple of things I want to comment on. First, the stated concern here in this chapter is for us to be holy just as the Lord is holy. So we're going to be expecting some principles of holiness or holy living in this chapter. Secondly, it's, Moses is told to address the entire assembly of Israel. So these instructions or these principles for holy living aren't just for the priests or the national leaders, aren't just for the pastors and your full-time ministry staff. It's for everybody, the entire assembly of Israel. So that's all of us here. Okay, so let's move on. Verse 3. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I ask the question because it's all there in one verse. You know, we, we could divide that into two. Respect your father and mother. Uh... Observe my Sabbath. But it comes together in one verse, in verse 3. And so I wonder whether there is an intended connection between the two. Respect for parents as well as observing the Sabbath. Maybe it is worth thinking about because I think filial piety and the Christian gospel is a major concern in Asia. I think many many parents have an impression that Christianity somehow teaches their children not to respect their parents. They have this idea that Christianity takes children away from showing filial piety uh, in terms of respect and care for the family. And yet, the Bible is so full of the importance of honoring our parents. And so it's worth thinking a little about this. Parents and Sabbath, which we are meant to keep holy. The Sabbath theme is quite strong in Leviticus and in chapter 19 we get it again in verse 30 where we're told to observe the Sabbath and there's respect for the sanctuary. So maybe the Sabbath is for us to demonstrate respect for God and parents. Looking again at that verse and the connection, 
Each of you must respect your mother and father and you must observe my Sabbath. I wonder whether there might be a connection. Whether one of the ways in which we observe the Sabbath uh, is by respecting our parents. Here, remember, I'm moving beyond just the literal words to trying to apply it. I mean, wouldn't it be a nice practice if every Sabbath we remind ourselves, this week have I shown any respect to my parents? Or maybe, you know, you might be living apart. No, let me remember this Sunday or Sabbath, give my parents a call or drop them a note. I mean, if you had that sort of thing as part of what it meant to observe the Sabbath is to, re- to remind yourself to show respect or honor to your parents, that could function as part of the rhythm of spirituality. Also, think about it. Observing the Sabbath, we must not use observing the Sabbath as our excuse for showing disrespect to our parents. That might be another way to think about it. Uh, and you know, this is a problem that we, we have sometimes here in, in Singapore where, where maybe uh, your parents are not Christians and so they, they don't understand why you go to church all the time or whatever. And, and so it's important that we get that balance right. We must not use respecting the Sabbath or observing the Sabbath as an excuse for us to actually dishonor or show disrespect to our parents. We must think about how not to make the two contradict one another. To both observe the Sabbath and show respect to our parents. Because, as I've said, filial piety and the Christian gospel is a major concern in Asia. And there are a number of issues that we need to think about and talk about in this area. Our own track board of uh, Witness and Evangelism recently organized a seminar dealing with uh, Chinese customs and festivals and a Christian approach or way to appropriate them in a way that does not offend or does not drive our parents further away from the gospel. And it's important because the Bible does emphasize uh, the importance of respect for parents. And in the New Testament, you have this example in Mark chapter 7, uh, verse 11, where Jesus criticizes the Pharisees because they were using their devotion to God as an excuse to not give to their parents. Uh, And you'll see in Mark 7, 11, Jesus scolds them for that. Don't you dare say that you've devoted this uh, money or support to God And so I cannot give it to my parents. And he was saying, you have a responsibility to care for your parents. So I think Jesus there was making the same point. Uh, Don't use your love for God as an excuse to neglect proper care and respect for your parents. See also 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 8. Those of you who happen to have memorized that verse talks about uh, believers must care for their their parents. And saying, uh, you know, that's our priority Okay, so do our Sabbaths help us to show respect to our parents? So I think worth thinking about since Leviticus 19 puts the two so closely together. I won't have time to comment and elaborate on every verse in Leviticus 19, so I'm not going to say much about verse 4, which basically says don't have idols. You would reflect on Don't just literally say, okay, so I don't have any physical idols, but one might think about the principle, what does it mean to not have idols, uh, and and apply that in our life. But let me say a bit more about these peace offerings that uh, cover verses 5 to 8. 
I read, when you sacrifice a fellowship offering or peace offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. Don't eat it. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. So on one simple literal level, it's just giving you instructions, make sure the peace offering gets eaten up by the second day, don't eat it on the third day, burn it up. But that's all that the text says. But we're trying to look for principles, lasting principles that perhaps uh, can inform us and give us some wisdom for living. Um, so if you think along that line, as you start chewing the cud, if you like, as you start meditating on God's word, do any of you think what might what might we possibly learn from this? So let me, uh, let me suggest to you uh, something that I think about beyond the literal to the last thing. I put question marks because I can't be sure, but as I think about that, maybe this is what it means. The words simply say, eat within two days. All sacrifices don't last beyond two days. So perhaps, since this has to do with a peace offering... A principle might be, it's, it's trying to teach us that peace or reconciliation is not something that is permanent, but needs ongoing nurture. You know, so it's, it's got to be renewed. You, you can't give it once and think it's going to last forever, that peace offering. It needs to be freshly given. Maybe it has to do with food hygiene. Maybe this was a simple instruction on wisdom. After two days, the food is in that climate, in those days, not going to be preserved for long. So this may have been God's way of saying, don't get sick and, and food poisoning, perhaps. And if so, then we would apply that uh, to ourselves as well, the importance of food hygiene. In Singapore, we take it almost for granted. But you know, there are many places, just hygiene is one of the... The lack of hygiene is a major problem in, 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 in health. So perhaps both principles uh, are there. Verses 9 to 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So this you've got to imagine you're a farmer and you're now trying to collect the, the grapes or the grain and you're going through the harvest. And this instruction says, you know, as you're gathering, some may fall on the floor. As you go through the first time, you have may have missed some that are still on the plant or the branches. And it says, don't bother to go back a second time to pick up the last few that, that you missed on the first round. Leave them there so that the poor and the foreigner who don't own any farms themselves they can come in on their own maybe later at night or whatever and pick some of the, the things that have dropped for themselves. That seems to be what the instruction is saying. And so I put there perhaps the principle is don't be so calculative in the way you're trying to squeeze the last drop out of everything that you do. Be more responsibly generous. Because none of us have farms, you know. So if, we, if you're only looking for a literal... Uh, application, this is like totally irrelevant to most of us in Singapore. But if you're trying to find a principle, perhaps this is the sort of principle. Be responsible but generous, responsibly generous. So the command isn't don't bother to harvest any of your grain, give it all away. That's not what it says. By all means, do the harvest, but don't be 
overly uh, st- calculative or squeeze the last drop out of everything. Notice also that it's not, uh, there's that interesting thing, and you have this in the book of Ruth illustrated. It's not simple handouts to the poor. They still have to come to the field and they still have to pick up the, the so they still have to work. There's some dignity in their having to work to get some of the, the spoil uh, that's left behind, as it were. Don't steal and don't lie. Are always applicable. I don't. I won't need to comment on that. I should, although it is uh, so difficult to follow sometimes. Verse twelve then goes on to say, "Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord." And then, verse thirteen goes on to say, "Do not oppress your neighbor," and it gives us a very practical principle. Uh, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. So that one, the principle seems fairly obvious. Uh, don't, don't be late in giving your workers their salary. Right? Pay the salary on time. Uh, in those days, workers were paid daily. It's a daily wage. And so they'd get paid at the end of the day. So do not defraud, rob your neighbor. And a very practical illustration of that is make sure they get paid on time. Then verse 14, do not bully the deaf and the blind, but fear the Lord. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. So again I ask, it's interesting how the verse ends by saying, do not curse the deaf or or, or bully the blind, or put a stumbling block in in front of the blind, but fear your God. Why, Why say, but fear your God? What's the connection why, why does Moses put that connection together uh, in terms of making sure you don't exploit the deaf or the blind, but fear the Lord? So perhaps it's like this. He said, you might be able to deceive the deaf and the blind, but you fear the Lord. You won't be able to deceive God. So don't you dare try and trick the deaf or the blind. So it could be a warning. Put it the other way. To fear the Lord means to make sure you do not exploit those whom you think you can easily exploit. So this is this this important concern of the Lord and and uses his name to warn us not to exploit those who are perhaps more vulnerable to being exploited. So notice again the connection between fear of God and treating your neighbor correctly. Or in more positive terms, the connection between love for God and love for neighbor. So if you really fear God, if you really love God, you will treat your neighbor with respect. You won't try and exploit your neighbor. You won't exploit the deaf. You won't exploit the blind. You will in fact show love for them. So the close connection again between one's holiness in terms of one's relationship with God and holiness expressed in terms of caring for the neighbor. Let me backtrack and show you these verses that we've just looked at And look at the position of verse 12. See, verse 9, be responsibly generous to the poor. Let them pick up the grains that you missed on the first round. Don't steal. Don't steal from your neighbor. Don't lie to your neighbor. Don't deceive your neighbor. Verse 13, don't oppress your neighbor. Do not bully the deaf and the blind. And note how verse 12 is in the middle of all that, which is, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. Suddenly you've got an instruction that seems to deal just about 
the way you talk about God or use His name. But it's all there within instructions that have to do with how you relate with fellow human beings and your neighbors. So again, I think that, that every now and then by God inserting the importance of showing Him respect in the midst of commands that, that tell us to show respect to our neighbors, it emphasizes this close connection in, in the book of Leviticus between loving God and loving neighbor. Uh, it, it, they're not they're not set in contrast against one another. It's it's like together. To love God means to love your neighbor. To fear God means to respect your neighbor and not exploit or oppress your neighbor. And so, as we should know, because Jesus emphasizes that so clearly in the New Testament when he's asked, "What's the greatest commandment? What sums up the whole Bible, if you like?" And Jesus says, "It's love for God and love for neighbor." Okay, so we've gone through this and already, but fear the Lord right there at the end of verse 14. So holiness in the book of Leviticus has to do with how we relate with God, yes. But it has to do with how we relate with people. And they're both, they're placed, uh, they're intertwined. This whole idea of relating with God rightly means relating with people rightly. Verse 17, do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in his guilt. I've given you the English Standard Version as well, so that the verse just sinks in a little bit more. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. So again, as we meditate on God's word, think about some principles that, that come out from this verse, we could, uh, there, there are two that I think worth, at least two that are worth thinking about. Number one, it says, do not rebuke your brother in your heart. So that would suggest, watch your attitude. When you rebuke someone, beware lest, you know, you've allowed hate to, to well up in the way you start rebuking or criticizing that person. So the, the scriptures are warning us to, you rebuke, yes, but don't don't start to hate the person. And secondly, though, it, it says, do not re- hate your brother in your heart, but that doesn't mean don't rebuke. Right? We sometimes think, oh, let's love the person, so then I don't criticize or I don't rebuke. Here you've got the... No, by all means, rebuke your neighbor frankly. So you have to correct, you're asked to correct a neighbor who's, who's doing something wrong, but make sure when you do that, you're not doing that with hatred in your heart, or uh, you know you you're out to to belittle him. Maybe it, you know, you rebuking is part of love. Rebuking is part of uh, uh, something you do if you're concerned for someone. So maybe even to fail to rebuke might be in some ways to hate a person. If you look at it like that, the the command here is rebuke, but make sure you don't do it in a hateful manner. So do not hate in your heart, but rebuke. So watch your attitude whenever you are rebuking. And we all know that true love does sometimes involve rebuking or correcting uh, our neighbor or our loved one. Now what book are we in? We're in Leviticus. And Leviticus is in the Old or the New Testament? Old Testament. 
it amazes me that so many people seem to think that the Old Testament has just has to do with external laws. Obey this, do this. When here you have very quite, quite clearly an emphasis on one's internal attitudes as well. The laws of Leviticus are not just having to deal with what you do externally. It already covers how one feels in one's heart, how one, how one thinks with one's mind. And look at verse 18. Do not seek revenge. Do not bear a grudge. All these are internal attitudes. They're not laws in the sense that, you know, legal laws can't judge a person for what they're thinking in their hearts. You only can judge in terms of your actions. But Leviticus isn't that kind of a legal code. It's dealing with proper relationships amongst one another. And it's trying to tell us, love each other. Don't bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Good News Bible interprets love, uh, uh, do not bear a grudge, as do not continue to hate him. So to love a person means not to hold a grudge against a person. It's easy for me just to repeat these sort of words and throw out these nice principles. Uh, and, but we know it's all difficult in, in real life. I find very helpful Jesus' Jesus' own summary of how, how to to think about each situation. In Matthew 7, 12, it used to be universally known as the golden rule. And I'm sure then if I say golden rule, some of you at least will know what Jesus said. Where he said, treat someone the way you would want them to treat you. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. So that's a really helpful principle, I think. When you're thinking about what to do or what to say, think about how would you like that someone else to say the thing to you or do the thing to you and try and do it in that same way that you would want someone else to treat you. Always a very useful principle. Do not bear grudges. So Old Testament holiness is not just external holiness. It has to do with our heart and our thinking and whether we bear grudges. Okay, let me pause a while. Any questions? or clarification, or you missed out some blanks and you need me to go back a bit. I missed out verse 15 and 16? Oh, did I? Let me go back there and see what I have there. I didn't say anything about it. Remind me what verse 15... Oh yeah, it said... Okay, sorry. Be fair, no unfair treatment for either the rich or poor. So that's another interesting principle, isn't it? It... Caring for the poor, but on the other hand, you don't want to be biased. That verse says, don't be biased in favor of either. You need to be honest. So don't overly favor the poor, uh, but treat everybody fairly. Uh, Do not slander. But anyhow, I I won't say more about that. There's so much (laughs) unless you want something. (laughs) But it all has to do with how we relate with people. And I think... We would want people to treat us fairly. Not necessarily show us special favor that they wouldn't show to someone else. But please treat us uh, with respect and, and be fair. Okay, let me move on. Verse 19 talks about, I think, boundaries. The words itself are up there. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. 
the Bible just says it and it doesn't tell us why. So this is part of the problem with a lot of uh, scriptural commands. Uh, we don't know the why. Does, is there some practical farming wisdom that lies behind this? Not mating two different kinds of animals or making sure when you plant your field that the two kinds of seed aren't placed side by side. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material, wool and linen or cotton shouldn't mix. Uh, anyway, so we're not sure. Is there some botanical wisdom? In, is there, or is, there, is it just a general principle, respect different boundaries, work boundaries? And nowadays with technology, there's fears about genetic manipulation when they're trying to merge two different kinds of species. Food engineering, does this relate to that principle? It's hard to be certain because uh, the, the Bible doesn't elaborate on this principle. In Seattle, there is a Jewish inspection service. They call themselves the Sha'atnes, which is just the Hebrew word for uh, in this verse. And so they are just applying this literally because they, if you go to their website and you, you, you see, they say, the scriptures say, do not mix two, two types of material. Um, it doesn't tell us why. But it tells us. So, that's enough. So, if you want to be a faithful Jew and you want us to check whether the coat that you have bought has any mixed material, it will cost $10 if you check your suit. We'll charge you $7.50 for a jacket, $2.50 for uh, pairs. And, and if we find that, in fact, your suit has a mixture, we'll remove the mixture for $10. See, so it puts there, are your clothes free from both wool and linen together? Are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? If you want to be sure, because you know you want to be faithful and obedient to all the literal commands of Scripture, just send in your suit and we'll check for you to make sure that there aren't two different materials. Now, okay, so although I've sort of laughed at it, they, they, it's serious. This is a serious service that is offered for Jews, particularly Orthodox Jews who want the truth is we don't know what's the principle that lies behind the command. So it's, uh, it's difficult for us to, to know how to apply it. But when I think of so many other commands in Scripture where I'm looking for the principle, I, I think I wouldn't myself be overly worried about this. Okay? But anyhow, it, it, this is where uh, people who love God disagree as to how to apply Scripture. And I talked a bit, quite a lot about disagreements that we may have about certain days, certain foods, etc., and how we must learn to treat each other with love and respect. Verses 20 to 22. This is the case of the girl about to be engaged or employed by someone else. I put the verses there for you to look at. If a man sleeps with a female slave who is promised to another man, but who has not been ransomed or given her freedom, there must be due punishment. Yet they are not to be put to death because she had not been freed. The man, however, must bring a ram to the entrance to the tent of meeting for a guilt offering to the Lord for the sin he has committed and his sin will be forgiven. So this seems to be a case of where a girl who is about to be engaged or sold or employed by someone else, the man who currently uh, the house in which this girl currently serves or uh, as a slave or as a maid or whatever, if a man sleeps with that slave, uh, a female slave, 
even though she had been promised to another man uh, and is about to go, then there must be some due punishment. Now, if we're just going to be applying this literally, see, we will say, well, I don't have female slaves, I'm not selling any slaves to anybody, and we will probably, that's why many of us struggle with a book like Leviticus. It just doesn't seem to have any real relevance uh, to us. But that's why I've suggested that I think we need to learn to read Scripture beyond the literal to try and find the lasting principles that might underlie some of those verses. And so what, if we think like that, what might we, what sort of principle might we uh, draw from this? Very broadly, I think it, it, it certainly speaks about the need to respect another person's prior relationship commitments. So I, I suppose that would be one broad principle. And so we could think along those lines. Do I respect uh, the sort of relationship or commitments that others already have with someone else and not override that? And then when you have that as a principle, it might well apply to many, many situations uh, in, that we might encounter even today. Verses 23 to 25 also uh, we're not really told why, but here's the command. When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years you are to consider it forbidden. It must not be eaten. In the fourth year all its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat its fruit. In this way your harvest will be increased. Uh, the, the text translated as, as forbidden is literally, you shall treat its fruit as uncircumcised. And, and in other words, don't, don't mess about with it as, as forbidden. Because to be circumcised meant to be holy, to be uncircumcised meant to be unholy. Sorry, to be circumcised meant to be holy. If you're uncircumcised, you were considered unholy. So what does it mean then? regard its fruit as forbidden. So if you are using the analogy of the literal words which is uncircumcised, which involves some cutting, if you want to circumcise something, do not cut off the fruit. Leave it uncircumcised if you like. Leave it uncut. Or does it mean cut off the bud before it becomes fruit? Do not eat it, but you can or should cut it off. So again, on one hand, we argue here over the literal meaning that lies behind the phrase regard fruit as uncircumcised. But more difficult is why? Why must we not uh, take the fruit in the first three years? Why are we to consider it uncircumcised or forbidden? Uh, and this is where even the botanists argue with one another. Because some say, oh yeah, it's, it's good to, to let a plant for three years just grow and don't take the fruit. Others say, no, you do that, you kill the plant. You need to, you need to cut off the fruit. You need to, to prune it, etc. Otherwise, it's not good. So it's, it's difficult to, to be certain what is the wisdom that lies behind this command. Is it respect for nature? So don't be so greedy. Every, everything, every year the fruit, fruit comes, you grab it all for yourself. Does it have to do with that? Or is it just trying to teach us patience? Be very patient before you reap the rewards. Could that be the principle? Don't be in a rush to grab all the rewards and the profit, uh, but you know, wait a few years. Question marks behind all of those, but possible principles. 
Certainly, at the very least, I think it means to acknowledge God for all fruit received. So here it's talking about when you go to the land and you plant and you receive fruit, hold back. Uh, it's an offering of praise to the Lord, the verse says. Uh, so in some ways, remember God and give thanks when you see your fruit trees bearing fruit. Verse 26, no eating of blood, no divination. Do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. Do not practice divination or seek omens. Now, I spoke about not eating blood last Thursday when we were looking at Leviticus chapter 17. Here in Leviticus 19, it links together in the same verse, do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. Do not practice divination or seek omens. So in other words, don't go to medium or uh, these, these sort of things. I wonder why the two are placed together. Does the proximity of the two sentences suggest a connection? And some scholars think the answer is yes. In other words, they think that at this point, the principle is don't copy the blood rituals that are practiced in other religious circles. Blood was commonly drunk in ancient rituals and so maybe here is a command it says so don't eat any meat with the blood still in it and don't practice divination at that point maybe it's thinking of don't try and copy the sort of rituals that involve blood in animals etc draining the blood and part of a ritual that is used in other ancient religious rituals and if so then the principle would be don't mindlessly adopt the religious practices of other religions just because so many people are doing it and it's in that culture. So remind you about last week. Last week, and we looked at Leviticus 17, we came up with two principles for why we sh the command not to eat blood was given. It, it was meant to remind us to give thanks for God's atonement of our lives and in, uh, to, to be appreciative of the cost of atonement. And blood was shed for the in order for, for atonement to be made available. And so we respect uh, the cost of atonement and we give thanks to God and we res show respect by not eating blood. We respect the life and death of all creatures because life is in the blood. If we add now the third possible principle uh, related to the command not to eat blood, we could perhaps add don't copy blood rituals of other religions. And um, of course, modern health reasons, there are some scholars, some students who suggest that uh, maybe this principle has the wisdom of the Creator, knowing how easily disease can be carried by blood. Uh, not eating blood was again a very wise uh, instruction, especially in those days when they didn't have the means that we have today uh, to, to minimize the risk of infection. Right? The blood carries disease, as we all know, mad cow disease, AIDS, etc. Okay, I may make myself, make, may make myself even more un, uh, unpopular with some parents here. Verses 27 and 28 say, Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. So on the picture on the right is a picture of a typical Orthodox Jew. And there are many who, who try to apply as many commands in the Bible as literally as they can. And so this one says, don't shave. 
Let your sideburns grow. And so you will have, uh, you can recognize these Orthodox Jews because they look like this, right? <laughs> All their life they haven't shaved. And so it just gets curled up, curled up, and it's longer and longer. So they are trying to apply it literally. Um, hey, you nicely shaven. Uh, <laughs> we believe the Old Testament is the Word of God. Uh, uh, but, you know, our Christian tradition, the majority of Christian traditions have not felt a need to apply this literally. And it's not only this verse. There are many verses in the Bible that we look beyond the literal to what we hope we, is the lasting principle and try and apply that. Last week, I, I gave examples of how New Testament writers do the same. They don't apply everything in the Old Testament literally. That's one of the reasons I think the the the... The strict Jews in Jesus' day were very angry with him because they felt that he was not applying the Old Testament laws literally. I digress. It goes on in verse 28 to say, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. I know many parents like this verse, the second half of verse 28, and they will use it to try and tell their children, Don't ever get a tattoo! The Bible says, no tattoo marks on yourselves. And, and I, I appreciate that. But it would be a little bit unfair to only apply the second half of verse 28 and not ignore verse 27 altogether because parents often tell their children to have haircuts and to, <laughs> to cut their, their long hair. So you've got to think through, it, it can't be a right principle of biblical application to only choose the bits that suit you to tell someone, don't do that. <laughs> We've got to try and sort out, if we can, what is the underlying principle. right? So, for instance, I ask you this question. There are some Christians today who get tattoos because they want, as, a, as their mark of love for God. You have tattoos of the cross, you have Christian tattoos. Uh, there will be some saying, I love the Lord, I'm not ashamed. And, and they, would that be going against uh, the the word of God in Leviticus 19.28. Would a Christian tattoo of a cross be disobeying Leviticus 19? The answer is yes, if you assume Leviticus 19.28, literal commands are meant to last and have significance for all time. Or whether or not there is a principle that underlies the command there that we may not yet have grasped. In this case, maybe the principle... Let's see whether I have it on the next slide. No, I don't. Let me go backwards. Take you back to the verse. Maybe the principle of having no tattoos or not cutting the hair might have to do with that phrase that I slipped over. Do not cut your body, bodies for the dead. See, so what, what, is, what underlies that sort of command? Could this be some of the rituals, the mourning rituals, the grieving rituals that were practiced by people at that time in the land. Maybe the way they mourned uh, and grieved was to put a tattoo, cut themselves and make a tattoo at that point, a way, their way of showing grief or uh, uh, some kind of a mourning ritual. Uh, possibly. And if so, then maybe this has to do with this area of don't copy those kind of mourning rituals that inflict harm on yourself with a tattoo. But it... But it may not 
be God saying anything in general in a completely different context where someone thinks they want to put a, a decorative, nice tattoo on their body as a way of expressing love either to God or to their, to their spouse. Anyhow, there you are. That's scripture. And we Christians and Jews disagree as to how literally to apply verses like this. Verses 29 to 31, Do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute, or the land will turn to prostitution and be filled with wickedness. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord, your God. So again, a number of things that I won't say too much about it. I just... Uh, just give, give you the blanks that I put there. The principle, show respect for your daughter. Don't just sell her off uh, for, you know, to survive and get money. Although I know sometimes people are in desperate situations and they, sometimes that does happen. There's show respect for the Sabbath. Do not resort to mediums. Respect for God and seniors. Verse 32. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly. Revere your God. I am the Lord. So such an important principle today because so many countries in the world uh, are aging. Singapore is aging, right? Uh, Because we are not having enough babies and many of us are living longer. And so proportionately, Singapore is one of the fastest aging countries uh, in the world. We need to learn as a church how to, to, to set the example of showing respect for those who are elderly. Verses 34 to 36, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights, an honest effort and an honest hint. These are measurements. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. So again, that emphasis, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. You were foreigners in Egypt. And that seems to be the motivation for making sure you treat foreigners fairly. Remember, you guys were in Egypt once upon a time and you were foreigners there and how badly you were treated. Don't uh, treat foreigners in Israel like that. Okay, so putting it there, you have verses 33 to 34, show love for the foreigner. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your foreigner, the foreigner as yourself. Interestingly, right, verse 18 earlier was the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here in verse 34, love your foreigner as yourself. So it's not just your neighbor in terms of your fellow Jew, fellow Israelite. Love the foreigner as yourself as well. Then do not cheat, be fair. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. So you see here God's concern for all people, not just Israelites, but for Israelites to show God's love to everybody. So loving our neighbor and foreigner alike. We have those verses in Leviticus 19. So that's why I think it's really quite a central chapter uh, and Jesus picks it up. Because it does emphasize the importance of loving your neighbor and making clear that your neighbor isn't just your own kind. 
Your neighbor is also the foreigner who is living amongst you. Love them as yourself, the foreigner as well. So again, that of course is painfully applicable in our day as well. When we've got all this uh, not in my own backyard kind of uh, thinking when we're worried about... Uh, but it's not easy questions. How does one uh, treat foreigners? How does one you know, manage that? It emits your own economy, etc. So again, pray for our government leaders. Not easy to solve these sort of questions. Pray for wisdom, uh, proper respect and, and care and concern. I, won't, I think I won't comment too much about that. Just bring you down to that last point. Uh, in, those are the verses in the New Testament. If you were to ask to summarize the whole Bible as, in a sentence, the commands, all the commands in the Bible, which is the most important, how would you summarize it? So as you know, Jesus was asked that actual question, right? How, what's the greatest commandment of all the laws and commands in the Bible? Which is the greatest Jesus' response was, that's a silly question. Every command in the Bible is important. Everything that God commands is equally important. So don't ask for a simple summary. You guys always want simple summaries. No, Jesus actually answers the question. And he, he, he does summarize it. He says, the greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Full stop. So in other words, that's the principle through which you should, all other commands, if you like, feed into that. So everything has to do with, is this expressing love for God? If I do this, or if I don't do that, is this expressing love for neighbor as I would love myself? Is this how I would treat myself? So everything works through that prism. Now I've given you other verses, Romans chapter 13 verse 9, Galatians chapter 5 verse 14. There the great apostle Paul also summarizes the scriptures. And how does he summarize it? Does he give a different summary from Jesus? No, he doesn't. But his summary is even shorter than Jesus'. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Look look up Paul in Romans thirteen. The whole law is fulfilled in the command, and he chooses you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't even mention, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. I don't think Paul is contradicting Jesus. Paul is correctly understanding Jesus. To love the Lord with all your heart is also expressed in loving your neighbor as yourself. The connection isn't something that you can divide. And so just to save ink maybe, Paul just said, love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes the scripture. And he's not wrong. As we've seen in Leviticus, that the connection between fearing God and treating your neighbor correctly are linked. Loving God and loving your neighbor are, are one and the same. And, and so that's why uh, Paul in Romans 13.9, and he repeats it again in Galatians 5.14, all the laws can be summarized in the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, and James chapter 2 verse 8 says pretty much the same thing. So the New Testament itself, provides us this lens through which we interpret all other commands and all other laws. So that's a good check when you're looking to try and decide, move beyond the literal to the lasting principle. The principle that you, 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 you come up with asks, does this express love for a neighbor, love for a fellow man, love for God? And, and 
So don't bring out a principle that you know allows you to hate somebody, allows you to go and kill somebody. So that's a good way to check. Try and at least put a check on one's interpretation. Leviticus 19, the God of Leviticus 19, you shall be holy, holy, a God who is concerned with every area of our life. So I'm just giving you now a big summary of Leviticus 19. It deals with the area of what we might describe as civil area. Verse 13, about wages, making sure you pay uh, your workers on time, honest business dealings, don't cheat them. There's the social area, respect your parents, verse 3, the Sabbath. Verse 32, respect seniors, so it has to do with our social relationships. It has to do with area of what we might call moral moral laws or principles. Make sure, verse 15, impartial judgment for all, love for foreigners. It also deals with the religious area, don't have any idols. Uh, verse 4, respect the sanctuary, verse 30. In short, in Leviticus 19, we, we get that principle which I, I, I shared with you on the first Thursday, Holiness here covers all areas of our life, civil, social, moral, religious. Holiness combines respect for God and respect for humans or neighbor. I've mentioned that already. The majority of the commands do concern our human relationships. In Leviticus 19, the majority of the commands have to do with how we relate with one another. Do not cheat, do not oppress, pay the worker on time, do not bear a grudge. Holiness uh, is social. In other words, it's how you relate with one another. Love for God, love for neighbor. So holiness in Leviticus isn't some private spiritual feeling. Holiness is very practical uh, in the book of Leviticus. It has to do with how one relates with fellow human beings. And I've already said about the centrality of love in, the, in Leviticus. We see here a God who is concerned not just for external actions, but also internal attitudes. Make sure there's no hate, don't bear a grudge. We see a God concerned for the marginalized, the deaf, the poor, the blind. Love for neighbor and foreigner alike. And the New Testament emphasis uh, repeats this. Those are the same verses as the, pre uh, the other slide. Okay, so I've taken a bit longer on Leviticus 19, but I do think it is really such an important chapter. Uh, and don't worry, Leviticus 23, I'll take you through it much more quickly. Any questions or comments? Gerda, yes. Okay, thank you. The question is, Does is the Ten Commandments a summary of Leviticus, by this do you mean Leviticus? Well, the Ten Commandments certainly is a good summary. So, for instance, if we did look at the Ten Commandments and we first find them in the Bible in Exodus, uh, you'll see it also has this same thing about love, love or respect for God. You shall not have idols, you shall have no other gods before me. But also the very human element of relationship with people. Honor your parents. Uh, honor your father and mother. Do not do not lie. Do not co uh, cover uh, the the wife or the or the cattle or your neighbor. So it has to do with that human relationship aspect as well as your relationship with God. Honor the Sabbath, and they're put together. So it is a very good summary, an excellent summary as well, uh, and it makes that same general point that I think Leviticus makes the the close connection or the fact that you know love for God and fear of God and obedience to God. 
is expressed in the way you treat your neighbor. So yes, uh, Ten Commandments would be another excellent summary. But Jesus' summary is even shorter than the Ten Commandments. Right? So he, he just sort of narrows it down and he picks the verse in Leviticus, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. The love of the Lord your God with all your heart, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy, which is also, uh, uh, there? he quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Any other questions? If not, let's take a three-minute stretch before I go into Leviticus 23, talk to you about three festivals that Orthodox Jews still celebrate today that are commanded and how we can perhaps apply those same principles for our own rhythm of life. All right. Leviticus chapter 23, very easy to summarize the content. We have instructions to the to the Israelites to observe three annual festivals. So I'm going to take you through the three annual festivals that are described there. But before it talks about the annual festivals, it mentions the weekly Sabbaths. These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work when, wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Uh, those of you who were here last Thursday in, in, in Hebrew, the word Sabbath is effectively our Saturday, right? It is, because that is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Friday evening, most of Saturday, and ends at Saturday evening. But then, after speaking about the Sabbath, it goes on to talk about three annual festivals. The first one is the festival of unleavened bread. Leviticus 23, verses 5 to 8. I don't have the verses up for you, but you have your own Bibles. Let me just tell you what the verses say about uh, Leviticus, uh, about this festival of unleavened bread. It begins with Passover day. And it's to be held every year. In the first month of the Jewish calendar, it's called the month of Nisan, uh, the 14th day of the first month. That Jewish month, that religious month, if you like, is equivalent to our March-April, mid-March to mid-April in our calendar. So just as an example, uh, uh, this year, Passover day was on the 19th of April. Uh, next year, it will be on the 8th of April. Then after the Passover day is uh, uh, on the 14th of that month, then on the 15th to the 22nd, in other words, one week, for one week after that, there, there is a festival of unleavened bread. And the commands say, don't do any work on the 15th as well as the 22nd. So at the start of the, that special week and the end of that special week, there will be public holidays, if you like. So two public holidays in, in, in that week. And then if it happened, that, and there will probably be a Sabbath day somewhere in between there as well. So, you know, you'd get at least three days off in the, this, this whole, uh, this week. Uh, then there's also mention about uh, waving, uh, waving the sheaf, which is meant to signal uh, the, the first fruits of the harvest. Because March, April is the, the start of spring, so your first fruits the very first fruits are just beginning to appear. As soon as they, they start to appear, you, you acknowledge that uh, and you give thanks. Okay, so, this, uh, so that's mentioned in these verses. Leviticus doesn't tell us explicitly what to do or why we're doing all these things. But Exodus 12.17, when it talks about this festival, says, Remember your exodus from Egypt. 
So what sort of a, the, the next annual festival is the, what we call the festival of Pentecost, uh, Leviticus 23, 15 to 22. Uh, in Leviticus, it's called the, the festival of weeks. Shavuot just means weeks. It's a Hebrew word for the plural weeks. Uh, verse 16 tells us it starts on the 50th day and that's where you get the word Pentecost because Pentecost uh, means 50. Right? So it started on the 50th day after the first fruits or wave the sheaf day which was at the end of that previous first festival. Bread is used as a wave offering. No work is to be done on this 50th day of Pentecost. All the four offerings are made and the term festival of weeks, uh, which is the alternative term, is found in Exodus 34. I think all this is in your notes. Uh, Leviticus doesn't use the phrase festival of weeks. It doesn't have a title to the festival. It just says, 50 days after Passover week, do this. Right? Uh, observe this. No work on the 50th day. So again, uh, this takes place in the third month of the Hebrew religious calendar, which is equivalent to our mid-May to mid-June. And again, this year, uh, the day of Pentecost was on the 8th of June. Next year, it will be 28th of May. And then the third festival is that of the tabernacles or tents. This begins with the Yom Kippur Day of Atonement, Day of Trumpets, and Yom Kippur Day. Yom Kippur is just a Hebrew word for Day of Atonement, Hebrew phrase. So the Day of Trumpets was on the first day of the seventh month. The seventh month of the Hebrew religious calendar equates to our September, mid-September to mid-October period. Uh, you will sometimes know the, some of you may know the phrase Rosh Hashanah, it's the new year, it's the, this religious new year of, uh, the Jewish civil new year, which is celebrated at this time. So Yom Kippur, we talked a bit about Yom Kippur the other day, uh, last Thursday. So it, it, it kicks off this, this particular feast of, it's the start of the feast of uh, tabernacles. It's on the tenth day of this particular seventh month. So this year Yom Kippur will be on the 8th of October. The festival of tabernacles or booths or tents or ingathering, that's the term that was used. Uh, so see what it gets held from the 15th to the 23rd of the 7th month. No work on the 1st day, no work on the 10th day because that's Yom Kippur. No work on the 15th day, no work on the 23rd day. So this is a special period. You get, you know, four public holidays, if you like, uh, during this this September, October month, in addition to your weekly Sabbath. Uh, what is the purpose of this festival, verse 43, to remember the pilgrimage in booths in the wilderness out of Egypt? Also, it marks the end of the autumn harvest. Okay, so that's the brief content. Now I think my next slide will fill in the blanks for you. Uh, we've got the three festivals. Festival of Unleavened Bread. It begins with Passover. You've got the Festival of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Festival of Tabernacles in which Yom Kippur uh, features uh, in the center of that. What is the relevance then of these festivals? 
Okay, anyhow, the first one, the festival, the Passover, what do you, you, you guess is that first S I've chosen? Yes, it reminds us about salvation. Salvation out of Egypt. Exodus specifically says that, so remember, and the Passover comes from that analogy of the, the coming out of Egypt, how the, the angel of death passed over uh, uh, the, the homes of the, the Israelites. Okay, so it reminds us of the great salvation that we have. Uh, then the second festival, the festival of Pentecost or, or, or weeks. What's that S you think it reminds us of? Oh, okay, yeah, relevance of unleavened bread, salvation from Egypt. Okay, so we've already guessed that without the slide. <laughs> so Passover day uh, re- reminds us of salvation. And this usually... For us in the Christian calendar, you know, it, it, it coincides with, quite often it coincides with our Holy Week uh, as well. Because Jesus w- was crucified during Passover week. Uh, so we too in the Christian tradition celebrate our Holy Week and we think of the death of Christ and how his death uh, has brought us salvation. So that fits in quite, quite well uh, with the Jewish celebration of their Passover. Then the festival of Pentecost, in Leviticus 23.17, it says, Wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of, an, two tenths of an ephah, baked with yeast as a wave offering. Verse 20, the priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering, together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. So, you know, this is the festival where as soon as you start to see the first fruits of the harvest, you wave them to the Lord. I, I guess that must be a way of acknowledging the Lord, saying thank you for providing us the start of a harvest that you know we're gonna. Uh, it's so important if you live in an agricultural economy that that, that that comes in. So I think it's giving thanks for God's provision or, or sustaining us. Your indication the Lord is sustaining us with another year of the harvest sustenance. In the seventh month, uh, in September, October, you have the Day of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, the Festival of Tabernacles. With the Day of Atonement being so central, you can guess that one of the, the third S I put there has to do with sin. It reminds, we take time to confess our sins, give thanks to the Lord for forgiveness. Uh, so we confess our sin, thank God for His forgiving grace. But also in that month, they have the Feast of where you, you, you can live in tents. Nobody lived in tents. I mean, in the wilderness, Moses and all, they lived in tents. But very quickly, once they settled in the land of Canaan, they started building homes. So people stopped living in tents. But once a year, they would have this festival to remind themselves of the days when they were in the wilderness. And so some of them would uh, live in tents for that, that week, as it were, to remind themselves just like in the wilderness, they were on a journey towards the promised land. So uh, descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And I wonder when, whether then that act is meant to remind them not only to think with gratitude that the Lord has brought us to where we are now, but maybe also to remind ourselves that in a sense we too are only sojourners. We are still on the way to the promised land. Certainly that's how we've interpreted it in the Christian tradition. We're on our way to the promised land, right? This is not the promised land now. This world is not my home. 
I'm just a passing true. Uh, and, and so this festival, that principle, I think reminds us that uh, we too are just pilgrims on a journey. We're not yet at our home, our eternal home. So we trust God as we sojourn through earth's temporary wilderness on the way to the promised eternal home of heaven. Okay, so these annual festivals would speak of these important things and remind us of these important things. Salvation, and we give thanks for that. Sustenance, we give thanks to God for sustaining us. We confess our sins uh, and we remind ourselves uh, this is not our permanent home. We're on the way. These are important truths, of course, that we should remember every day. But it's useful to have special festivals that specially emphasize these things once in a while. Because as you know, if you, we tend to forget, we t- take things for granted. And so this chapter 23 sort of helps to put within the rhythm or the life cycle of the nation these important reminders. And I think that's quite a useful thing to have for ourselves as well. How does the New Testament apply some of these things? Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, he certainly talks about Christ being the Passover lamb, so that refers to that first major festival in March, April, the Passover lamb and our salvation. I read Paul, Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Therefore, let us keep the festival, the Passover festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I forgot to explain the Passover festival a week. One of the things they would do to remind themselves of the days in the Exodus is they would eat bread that had not been leavened, unleavened bread. So yeast hasn't been put in to make the bread soft. So it's pretty hard. Uh, And that was just to remind them of the difficult days Uh, And here Paul uses that idea. So don't use yeast. Get rid of the yeast. Uh, Let's keep the festival not with leavened bread. You're not supposed to eat leavened bread during this festival. You're supposed to eat unleavened bread. So get rid of this old bread that has been leavened with malice and wickedness. But instead, eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See how Paul is... talking about that festival and now trying to apply it spiritually uh, to, to, to one's lives, to, to emphasize sincerity and truth and get rid of malice and wickedness. That's how we keep the festival, Paul says. That's how he applies it. So unleavened bread has to do with our sanctification. That's the way Paul seems to apply it. right? Uh, eat unleavened bread. Become more holy, sanctified, sincerity and truth. Paul's non-literal application of the unleavened bread, he urges us to be like fresh bread, that is, that is unleavened, sincere and truthful, without the corrupting yeast of malice and wickedness. Now we shouldn't apply Paul uh, to literally and say, oh, Paul says we should not put any yeast. He's not... Don't imply this as a command for Christian bakers to never use yeast. I don't think, that would again, I think, be to misunderstand Paul. But nor is he saying that we need, we should avoid the yeast of malice only at this festival once a year. So again, that would, I think, uh, be too restrictive. He's just using the festival to emphasize a particular point. Obviously, we want to 
Try and be people who are sincere and truthful all the year, not just during the week of Passover. Uh, just like Holy Week, we try and emphasize certain things. We're not saying the rest of the week, the rest of the year, you don't have to do all those things. We've been trying in the Methodist Church the last couple of years to urge Methodists during Passover week, or what we call now Holy Week, uh, to be particularly to to make a particular sacrifice, two hours of your time to go and visit one of our welfare homes or to get involved in some social concerns activity. I hope some of you remember there was that sort of campaign, the Giving Methodists. So we're trying to say during this 40 days of leading up to, to Easter, can we as Methodists, during those 40 days, each of us give up two hours of our time either to help out in your local church tuition center or, or visit the senior, what do you call, senior activity center that uh, Amokyo, you all are running. Get involved. Now, of course, we don't mean then the rest of the time you don't have to be, uh, but at least for this special, uh, these 40 days, can you make that effort? And then even if you don't get involved the rest of the at least once a year you, you've tried to do something. And that's the way festivals operate. They at least try and remind you of this. And hopefully many of us will be inspired by that and say, I want to do it more than just once a year. Maybe I, next year I can do it twice a year or three times a year, and others of you who have more time may, may do more. Okay, so that's the way these festivals or certain periods when we emphasize certain things, that's how they help as spurs to, to guide us and discipline us in our lives. Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And so for the Christian tradition, when we think of the festival of Pentecost, we think of the Holy Spirit coming uh, upon us. The Holy Spirit of Pentecost is the powerful presence of Jesus with us. And so now Jesus is with us through the Holy Spirit and He sustains us on our continuing journey on earth or our continuing sojourn on earth. So I think that does pick up the same ideas that the Old Testament talks about when it celebrates the Feast of Weeks, living in shelters or tabernacles uh, where uh, we remember that we are sojourners or pilgrims. And here I'm, I'm closing up now. Leviticus for all time. Leviticus is a number of verses that emphasize that these ordinances are for generations to come, wherever you live. In other words, these aren't just to, for the, that generation, Moses' time. After that, nobody needs to worry about them. It's all history. No, Leviticus says these, Leviticus says these principles that are there are meant for all generations, forever, wherever you live, whatever culture you live in. But that is a challenge. If that is true, if we are meant to apply Leviticus, not just historically this is how Moses did it and it was for his day and no longer for ours, but if this verse says it's for all of us, wherever we live, generations to come, we've got to think how, how does it apply? And I suggested to you that trying to apply it literally is going to it's, it's going to get us into a lot of trouble and may, in fact, misunderstand. We need to learn to move beyond the literal to the lasting, do the hard work of thinking, what did that mean then? What was the principle then? What was the cultural background then? What was going on back then? And try and understand the principle, the wisdom that lay behind the commands then. And then we apply that principle for our age and our, our time. So we move, just be, move beyond merely the sense or meaning of the words to the significance. Okay? 
In the first week I was with you, I gave this summary of Leviticus as God's invitation to continual holy communion. God wants us to relate with Him throughout the year, every day of our lives. So let me summarize uh, what we've done in Leviticus 23. It talks about having a weekly Sabbath. The book of Leviticus, uh, chapters 1 to 8, talks about four to five different types of sacrifices. And the first Thursday, I summarized these as sacrifices that remind us to totally dedicate our lives to God, to give thanks to God for all things, to, to reconcile and have peace with neighbor and with God, confession with sin and guilt offerings. And then now we also have three annual festivals which, which emphasize the importance of salvation in the past, sustenance in the present, sin that we have committed in the present, and then we also reminds us that we are pilgrim sojourners into the future. So all these sort of things built into one's annual life, if you like, weekly, weekly uh, ser services, special three or four special annual uh, weeks that emphasize these important truths. Throughout the year, you can offer different types of sacrifices which remind you of all these different things. If, you, if we did that, that would help to keep us, as it were, in constant, constantly thinking about God and relating with Him. And relating well with God means relating well with our neighbors. So that's the way I think the spirituality of the book works. By putting this all together, it's inviting us to remain in holy communion with God in love with God and love for our neighbor always. Do our organized worship calendar, does our organized worship, our weekly services, our annual special services help us create this sort of discipline or, or ritual or rhythm of life that helps us maintain constant holy communion with God? Hopefully the book of Leviticus uh, can help us think about this and Help us in this communion. And that's it. Any questions or comments? I think last week I also mentioned very briefly, wouldn't it, I think it might be important for those who have had a chance to be theologically trained to understand what Leviticus and other books of the Bible teach about the importance of worship and constant holy communion to, to try and give that input into our worship life, and worship calendar, worship services. And these are the sort of things that I think our weekly services, our special annual services, etc. need to try and uh, to, uh, to bring, bring out, help, our, help us as worshippers to remember these things and to apply these things to our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Yes, sorry I didn't see your hand. Okay, I think, I think I know. Let me try and summarize what I think you're asking and give a quick answer and then we can end. Okay, so you're saying, uh, how would I respond to people who say that uh, in, in the church we've adopted certain traditions or days like Christmas Day, December the 25th, which originally may have been used uh, in, in celebration of the sun, for instance, uh, worship of the sun. But you know now the Christians have taken it over and we spell sun, S-O-N, not S-U-N. So is that right? Why don't we just stick to, to the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish festivals, the, the three Jewish festivals, and not mess about with December 25th? Let, let's try and match ourselves with, with these. Okay, so that, that's the question. And what's my response to that? First point, 
Passover day is likely the Jews when they or when Moses when they took over that festival at springtime. Also, there would have been Canaanite rituals that celebrated uh, birthday. So, in other words, I'm saying even the Jews in making Passover special during March, April, it looks like they too were changing or. You know, people in that time used it for some festival. They decided to also make it special because it's a special time of year, spring. But they gave it a new meaning. This is, we'll do this and we'll remember our exodus. We'll remember, so they, they imparted special meaning. So, in a sense, what uh, the Christian church has done with December is similar. Yes, this is a time that everybody used to celebrate it, but it, we transformed it. Uh, so I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. It's, it's just working with the, uh, the calendar, but imparting new meaning. Christians have even done that with Chinese New Year. right? So, you know, the Ang Pao uh, has all those other associations of trying to f- scare off the, uh, the monsters or whatever it is, the, 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 the dragons and all that. But we... we well, number one, first, Christians happily give out the Ang Pao with, without that meaning, right? If they, if, without that fear. That's not why we give Ang Pao. So we've changed that meaning. And some Christian churches have gone so far. So now print Ang, Ang Pao's with Christian verses, etc. And using it as a blessing. So again, that's an example of how I think, though, they, we've worked with what we think is a good biblical principle, which is try to bless someone. And then we've used a particular cultural practice. We've transformed it. And we've tried to, to, to leverage on it. Uh, yes, people may disagree as to the wisdom of that, and at times it, it may come and it go, but I think we need to look to that intention. And if that intention and that principle is, is good and in line with biblical va- values, we shouldn't be so uh, literalistic and, uh, I think, wooden in, in, in condemning it. Uh, but I agree with you. I think, you know, we've got, in the Christian tradition, only two major festivals, really. We've got Christmas... And we've got Easter. All right. Uh, so we've got uh, March, April, and we've got December. I, I think it might be good to have a third one somewhere. <laughs> They're too far apart. But of course, it will make us very busy. In the Methodist Church, though, we've got a good chance. We've got Aldersgate, which is in May, which is quite close to Pentecost. But the trouble is, it's so close to Easter. Holy Week has just been, you know, uh, it's almost been less than 50 days since, since Easter. But, uh, but of course, there the three also weren't perfectly split up uh, uh, every four months. But having it's the issue of the balance of how many, if you have too many major festivals in a year, people get tired and it may even lose its, its impact. Too little and people, people forget. So the important thing is to build, I think, these sort of community, church rituals and, and calendar to help each other remember very important truths that can help us maintain holy communion with God and one another. And I overshot, it's 9.32, so better hand back to Anthony. Let's put our hands to thank uh, President again for a simple appreciation. Just in case uh, you're wondering what's relevant of all this to our church, all this teaching, remember what John Wesley said, there is no holiness except social holiness. So he truly understood that you cannot be holy by yourself. You need each other to be holy, right? Relationships matter, and that's why we are at uh, South Groups level, we are trying to move towards the class meeting model, actually recapturing uh, what John Wesley practiced in his time, uh, how we actually carry each other's burdens to love one another, and in that way, we also fulfill the commandment, 
right? Which is what Romans is about. To carry each other's burdens, and that's the way we fulfill loving your neighbor as yourself. At the same time, as our church is placed in Amoka community, we are called to reach out, to serve. And ongoing right now, I think just over, is the tuition program. We have 70 people, students, we are reaching out to. We are continuing to look for tutors to help us. And then we talk about seniors, right? Track President highlighted the verse about the importance of seniors. And we also will be looking at how we want to really move our engagement with the Senior Activity Centre one notch up in the coming months. So I think this is very relevant for us as a church. I didn't preempt what President will teach, but I think God is really aligning us. So cell group level, we move in the class meeting, and we serve the community here in Amokyo Church. So don't just let it be a good three weeks of lecture and learning. We want to move from loving God to actually loving each other and loving our neighbours as ourselves. All right, let's stand and let's pray. Lord, we thank you once again for track precedence for teaching the last three weeks, really revealing, unravelling the book of Leviticus to us. We ask for your wisdom to continue to be upon him as he guides the entire track uh, in your conference, 21 churches. And for us, Lord, here at Amokyo Message Church, help us to hear your call through the book of Leviticus, that, Lord, you are, your desire is that we be holy. And being holy is not being in a holy huddle, but it has implications in the way we impact the Amokyo community. So, Lord, help us to love each other the way we are called to, and help us to love our neighbours as ourselves. This means us now with your blessings, but Lord, this means us also with your Holy Spirit, that we may truly not just be hearers of your word, but be doers of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.